Hello and welcome to our podcast named Detours. This podcast embraces the unexpected twists and turns that shapes the journeys of our lives that God sends us down. I'm your host and fellow traveler, Mike. I'm here with my beautiful wife, Deb, and we invite you to join us on this exploration of uncharted territories we encounter along the way. So without further ado, let's dive into this episode. Welcome everyone to season number two of Detours. I am your host, Mike. And I'm Deb. And we have a special guest with us for this season, or at least the majority of this season, my father, Steve. Hello, everyone. And we are here today. We are answering the question, if God is so good, why do bad things happen to good people? And we're looking at it through the lens of my little brother, uh, Stuart. In episode number one, we talked about uh, him being born with a condition called transposition uh, of the great vessel arteries, arteries, excuse me, of the the great arteries, uh, his diagnosis. And in the last episode, we just kind of talked through, you know, the the plans that my parents had were to have two kids and that was going to be... you know, where, where they uh, stopped as far as having children and they had a good life set up for themselves. And all of a sudden, God plants this detour in their lives, uh, this trip. They had to hang a left hand or a left hand turn at Albuquerque, as Bugs Bunny would often say. And, uh, you know, they, they, they were asked to walk down a path that they didn't want to walk down, uh, as anyone would with a sick child. And last time, we just kind of talked about you know, what, what are some of the initial emotions? What are the thought processes? What are the questions? Uh, and just get some of the backstory on you and mom and Stuart and what was going on in your lives. Uh, and last time, I think we, we kind of left off with you telling the story uh, of the fish tank, uh, right? That was kind of yep. your last, I guess, big memory, if you will, other than them walking him into the, the, the surgery room. Uh, and just the story of you, uh, how much he loved the fish tank, and you kind of taking that, taking him to that for your last little memory there. Um, so the doctors come and they, 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 they give him a bit of a sedative, right? Yep. To calm him down in his room, uh, and they start putting the needles in. They they start prepping him. What what is what's happening there? How long does that take? I would, you know, it's been a long time. It's been 40 years, but I would, as I remember, maybe 15 or 20 minutes. Um, you know, they, they basically are hooking him up to a, a couple different types of IVs. They place monitors like an EKG on him. Um, they have a temperature probe thing that they they attach. Uh, just a variety of things. and they, They're not moving at any great speed. They're very careful about what they do. And so maybe 10 or 15 minutes. So they start to wheel him out, <clears throat> excuse me, and you're you're kind of following for a little while. Yep. And you get to the point where you can't go any further, right? And so detour number two begins. Is yes. that fair to say? Totally. So what happens? They They walk him down the hallway. You said there was an automated door that would open. 
and they wheel Stuart through, and the thought of going through your mind is that could be the last time I see my son alive. I think that's kind of where we left off. So let's let's pick it up there. Okay. What happens after Stuart is out of sight? Well, the first thing that happens is that they wanted to have a unit of whole blood in case they needed to do a transfusion. And he and Sandra had the same blood type. So we had to go down to the lab to have some blood drawn um, that they could have available during the surgery. There was still going to be quite a bit of time before they would need it, but they told us to come down right after he left his room. And so we went down to the blood lab to, to have Sandra give some blood. Mm. And at that point, does the waiting just begin? Yeah. So, you, you, you know, you look at the clock and you know, all right, they told us it would probably be, you know, four, five, six, seven hours. Oh, that must feel like an eternity. Oh, uh, Forever. Yeah, I mean, you, you look at the clock and you go, all right, it's 7 o'clock. You look, you do some stuff, you go, oh, it's only a 7.05. You know, it's it's a very long period of time. And unlike they do today, you know, today they're really, we have all this technology as simple as a cell phone where the nurses will call out and tell you, hey, everything's going fine, all well and good. No worries. And then they have big monitors that give status to tell you when, you know, where they're at in the surgery. You know, he's now, the doctor's closing or whatever. And you can kind of keep track. We had no You're understanding. Blind. Totally. Wow. We had no idea what time that surgery started. We knew what time they took him, but we didn't know if it started an hour after he was down there, 15 minutes, whatever. So we had really no idea. So... You know, we sat in the waiting room. Um, in those days, smoking was not prohibited. So all these nervous people, you know, were in there smoking up a storm. Chain smoking, and that and was your... Sandra and I, neither one smoked, and, you know, your eyes are burning, and, and it just made it really miserable. Um, but, you know, you, you sit there, and... It, when we got to like one o'clock in the afternoon, that's when you start saying, well, what you know, now? What, he should be out any time now. And, and the, you, know, you, you kept reassuring yourself saying, well, if anything bad happened, they would have come out and told us. And, you know, so you must still be alive because they're not out here yet. So, you know, you sit there and, you know, you watch as little by little the 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 crowd in the waiting room thins out because you know the doctors come and they, uh, you know, they call a family name and they'll give them the good news, bad news, whatever, and then they leave. And it's getting to a point now where there's not many families left in the in the waiting room. At least the smoke has cleared. <laughs> no, the smoke never really cleared. Sadly, <laughs> that that relates to a story we'll talk about another day, um, in another episode, but. You know, basically what happened is a nurse comes out as I was fully expecting to see the surgeon and a nurse comes out and she goes, you know, the, the doctor's cleaning up. Everything's fine. Uh, Stuart's, you know, they're, they're, they're finishing him up. Doctor would like to meet you down in this little room down at the corner. So we go down to the room and the doctor comes in. Massive man. This man was a linebacker for the University of Notre Dame. 
a big man. And here he is working on this little tiny heart. You just wonder about it. Hmm. And his opening words were, I have good news and I have bad news. So all you hear is I have bad news. You just <laughs> immediately, wait a minute. He goes, the good news is the surgery was completely successful. I'm thinking, what could the bad news be? Right. He said, the bad news is right in the middle of the surgery, Stuart's temperature spiked to 105. And we have no idea why. And that worries me. He said, you know, we've already started giving him antibiotics because we think it's probably he's got the flu or something. But he said, I never like to see a small child with a fever. And so he said, we'll be watching Stuart very closely because of that. And he said, you'll be able to go see Stuart here in about 45 minutes. The nurse will come out and get you. And you'll be able to go visit him. So I, you know, I don't know what to make of the fever. Especially since he he himself said, I don't know. Yeah. That means that any questions that you have, he can't <clears throat> answer. excuse me, the answer is probably going to be a lot of times, I don't know. So that's, and that was the case that day. You know, I said, well, what does all this mean? He goes, we don't know. He said, anytime there's a fever, there can be other things following that fever. He said, you know, I, I, and he said, I really don't understand it. He said, it, it just spiked all of a sudden right in the middle of the surgery. Hmm. And so he said, I'm going to watch him very carefully. And as it turned out, Dr. Sullivan never went home that night. He stayed all night and, and checked on Stuart like every half hour. He slept in a little break room of a thing. And that showed the level of concern. When, when I found out he was going to spend the night, then I got scared. Because wow. I'm thinking, if he's concerned enough he's spending the night, I need to worry. Yeah. And so what is said during those 45 minutes before you can go see Stuart? What do you remember what you talked with mom about? Yeah. What do you suppose this means? You know, where would he have gotten the flu from? None of us, none of us have it. Um, you know, what, what, could it possibly be? I mean, you, you just start asking a million questions of which you have zero answer to any of them. Yeah, I can imagine. And so you go and see Stuart. Does it look similar to the ICU? Yeah, the ICU. Oh, is it? even more stuff. Wow. He's got drainage tubes coming out of his chest to take out the excess fluids and things. You know, he's got a, um, you know, a, a breathing tube down his throat. He's got oxygen mask on. Um, many, many more machines hooked up to him. Um, it, it was very intimidating, but it was also, we both got really excited because for the first time in his life, his toes were pink, his fingernails were pink, his lips were pink. He, he looked like a normal kid amidst all these hoses and and, hmm. and wires and all that kind of good stuff. So, you know, that part was very hopeful. But it was really intimidating to see everything. And, you know, you see the big incision where they had cut his chest open. And, you know, they, 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 they have it. They don't really cover it. They, they use, like, strips to hold it together and stuff. So you see all of that. 
And you, you just, you know, your heart breaks because you say it's just not right that this little baby has mm-hmm. a, this massive incision running down his chest. Yeah, I mean, I, I would, pure speculation, but I think that would be one of those times where I, I would just say to God, trade places. I said that a million times. I, I, said, I would God, imagine. Why? I'll make a deal with you. You give me the heart condition and give me a healthy son. It's not right that he should have to go through this his entire life. I will gladly take that burden on for myself. And I mean, that's the heart of God for us. It is. I mean, that's why Jesus came, to take on the burden for us. Yeah. Yep. It's, it's amazing that a nine-month-old can have an attribute like courage and not even know what that means. That that's the definition of courage, right there, is to go into that hard surgery and. Well, think of think of all the small children that go through cancer and and yeah. and have chemotherapy and they lose their hair, you know, and they they're, they're getting they're vomiting all the time and all. Those are the, our small kids are warriors, yeah. mm-hmm. and they fight battles that we as adults tremble absolutely, and yet they hang in there and they fight. And, you know, I give tremendous credit. I have a number of families that I've gotten to know where their children have gone through serious problems and surgeries and chemotherapy and so forth. And just it's so amazing that they can fight like they do. And so many times both the children and their parents are far more positive in their outlook towards life than I am even. Yeah. They they will be just so grateful for for little things and and sure, they just you, appreciate life. We realize how precious life is when you're holding on by a thread. That every small thing is a big thing. I would think. Yeah, just incredible. So Stuart gets out. What what time in the afternoon do you think you? It's it, like two o'clock. Mid afternoon. Is Pastor Schmidgall there with you nope, guys? Not at this point. Not at that point. Okay. Um, so, the, what are the first? What, what does it look like the rest of the day? Is it well? Kind of quiet. In, he was in ICU. We weren't even allowed in that room with him. Oh boy. We were allowed ten minutes every hour, and so Sandra could go in for five minutes and come out, and I could go in for five minutes and come out. And that's all we could do. You couldn't go in together for the 10 minutes? Mm -mm. So, you know, we, you know, that was okay. Was that to create a sterile environment? More sterile? No, it was more because they needed the room. They didn't want, you got to keep in mind, they have this, the the bed, which is a fairly large size crib, but there's all this equipment and stuff and they need to be, have access. That nurse is constantly doing stuff. And if you put too many people in that room, they can't move. So okay. you, you, you don't even think anything of it. It's it's okay. I can do this. And so you, you go in, you spend your five minutes, and you come out and you say, see you next hour, Stuart. Um, that's what it's all about. Are you talking to him at this point? Absolutely. Like, yeah. Absolutely. It's going to be okay. Daddy's here. Yep. Mommy's here. Yep. And I would, I would lay my hand on him and pray. Um and you know, are you praying out loud for? I absolutely. Mean, do the nurses hear this? Absolutely. It's a good. You know. Absolutely. I. You know what? I, I didn't really care what anyone else thought. It wasn't part of the issue. You know, I. 
I felt led when this whole thing started that I needed to fast during this whole time. And so I began a fast on the day that he went into surgery. And that fast lasted until the day that he passed away. Um, and, you know, the, the nurses would say stuff to you like, why don't you guys go get something to eat? <laughs> and if anyone you, knew how much you love food, you would know that's, that's exactly that's right. A that was a sacrifice. That that's was, exactly yes. right. And so, you know, the, but the bottom line is I didn't try to hide anything from anybody. We had our Bibles with us the whole time. When we sat in the waiting room, we would read our Bibles and stuff and pray. And so people knew what was going on. Yeah, I mean, Christians they knew about us. Yeah. Were there any Bible verses that Stood you out. held on to? There was one particular situation. Um, we're kind of advancing beyond. We should, you know, I, I'd like to reserve that until we get to the point. But there were a couple of Bible verses that were significant um, that really have a story to go with them. And I'd like to share that, but we're jumping too far ahead, if that's all right. Yeah, yeah of course. Okay. Um, so the first 24 hours, was he stable? Stable, but still had a fever. He started to lose color at midnight on the night of the surgery. So that would have been, you know, 10 hour, 11 hours later, he would begin to, he would begin to lose color. Mm. And what, what was the cause of that? I'm not sure I can tell you what the cause of it was. Um, it might've been whatever this was, that was the 105 degree temperature. Um, but losing color meant the blood flow was starting to change again. So yeah, was but, it... but you know, what was interesting by two o'clock in the morning, the color came back again. Hmm. So it was only a, 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 a sort of a temporary loss. And by nine o'clock in the morning, Stuart looked fine. You know, we were now, you know, kind of in day two of our, our, our deal. Um, did, did, what did the doctors say with the loss of color? Were they panicking? Were they confused? They just treat the symptoms as they come. And, you know, they continued to give him antibiotics because they still believed that he had some sort of an infection. And, and they felt if they could get the infection that that would take care of everything. But, you know, they they just treat what they see. Sure. So, okay, so day, day number one doesn't go smoothly. He has some loss of color. Day two, what happens? So day two is, you know, we've, we've come from the color phase um, to where he restores his color. And then we talked to the heart surgeon about 11 in the morning. And that's when he told us he had stayed in the hospital all night and checked on Stuart every 30 minutes. Wow. Now, that, did you guys go home? Um, where are you staying at this point? Well, at this, at this point, yeah, Sandra went home. Like, we'd take turns. If we had to. Um, but I think, as I recall, they told us just go home that first night because they knew we were exhausted. As I recall, we did go home. But we came back. We were there at 7 o'clock in the morning the next morning. Right. And um, he came out and talked to us about 11 o'clock and said, 
you know, I was here all night. I'm still concerned. Um, we've taken blood cultures. We've, um, we've done everything. I, I, I kept a diary, if you will, of the whole ordeal. So for example, on that, when he came to see us at one o'clock again, he told us Stuart's temperature was at 104. It had gone down one degree. It was all, um, and that they were concerned his blood pressure was low. Um, they were also, they were a little bit concerned that the fever, if it stuck around, could have more devastating consequences. And when I asked that question, I said, well, what does that mean? He said, well, I'm concerned that he might have a seizure. Oh, like a febrile seizure. Yeah. And so he said, that's my biggest concern because we don't want that. And so um, it was probably, let me look at my notes here, about 10, 15, the following morning, he has a seizure. This is day three? Day three. Okay. We saw him at nine. We talked to the surgeon and to the and the um, cardiologist at nine fifteen, and they said he's actually improving. We're, we're seeing signs of improvement here. Meaning temperature going down, uh, temperature going down, the Blood color flow, staying good, right. all that kind of good stuff. And the other thing that they liked is they would touch his hands, and he would respond to the touch, which they were really pretty excited about. Okay. And then at 11.50, I have it documented, um, I'm sorry, 10.50, he has a, a seizure. And the first thing that they note after, I mean, then we weren't even allowed to go into the room at all for a while. The, the hourly visits, because they were, there were, they were lots of, of doctors and things in that room. Um, and he comes, you know, he's coming through this. He makes it through the seizure, but all of a sudden, we have this new doctor shows up, and he introduces himself, and he says, "I'm a urologist," and I'm going, "Well, what are you doing here?" And he said, "Well, um, oftentimes when there's a seizure, and in this case, it's true, Stewart's kidneys have shut down, which is normal." But he said, the good news is the kidneys will restart on their own. But I can't tell you when. It might be a day. It might be three days. It might be a week. Oh, wow. But they, they typically will restart on their own. And so... Um, What's your feeling about this new doctor? I mean, I, I'm thinking if I'm in this situation, I know my doctor. I know I trust him. I've seen him perform... Time and time again, he spends the night, he is diligent, all of a sudden a new person comes on the scene. You never know what, you know, goes through your mind. Like, is this guy qualified? I think that's the first thing you ask when anyone's touching your child. Maybe. I don't remember that. What I will tell you is, on the hindsight's always twenty twenty. Sure. He became one of my very favorite doctors. He, oh, wow. He was very compassionate. He was very concerned about Stuart. He often was a voice of reason to us. He would take Sandra and I off and say, let me tell you what I think. Okay. And so, as it turned out, 
this doctor was amazing. In fact, I would tell you that our entire medical staff, the whole time we were there, we had two cardiologists, we had the surgeon, we had a, a pediatrician, uh, we had the, um, the, nurses the urologist, and we had a neurologist that came along later. Now, that guy we had some issues with, um, but the nurses, all of the, the professional staff was amazing. That's and a blessing. They, they would go to any length to explain to us anything we asked um, and, and, and really tried to give us lots of detail. They tried to help us understand what was going on, where it might head, what would be the consequences of what just happened. Um, That's a very compassionate mindset because sometimes doctors get to the point where it's so rote for them. It's, this is my job. This is what I do. I detach so I can do what I do. And then don't really consider the empathy that's required to talk to a parent who's scared, who's frightened, who's, whose mind is racing. Yep. So what a blessing. It, it was totally a blessing. And, you know, the, every single one of these people really personally engaged with our son. Aww. And so everything, you know, being thrown at us, all things considered, we had the right team there for my estimation to help us get through it, except for one guy. What's interesting was all of a sudden we, we encountered a new situation where Stuart's temperature went from 104 down into the 80s. Oh. And so now they're having to warm him up, and his temperature would bounce around. It would be 85 or something for a while, and then it would go up to 103, and then it would go back to 82. It, it, and his blood pressure, I remember at one point his blood pressure was 40 over 20. Yeah, you know, Just barely alive kind of thing. Um and so as we, we started going through this, the, in a lot of ways it was kind of nice because you could see multiple doctors. And I know they were consulting with each other, but they would do their rounds and you'd see them at each at a different time, which is really good because instead of seeing them all at 9 o'clock in the morning, you would see the surgeon at 9 o'clock, you might see the cardiologist at 11, and it spread out the day so you have doctors giving you opinions all throughout the day instead of informed. getting everything at nine o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And so that was, that was really good. And then. I think if you got all that information at one time, like at 9 a.m., you'd be in information overload almost. Yep. Well, and I'm sure, especially for me being an internal processor, if you give me a bunch of information, it's going to take me an hour or two to come up with the questions that need to be asked where, you know, if I get a bunch of information at nine o'clock and someone else is in at 11, I can fire off those questions, get those answers, process that the next guy comes in at one. So that, that I, for me, that would be helpful. Again, they're not experts in one another's you know categories, if you will, but I think that would have been helpful for me as a processor. The, the interesting part to this whole thing is <laughs> I got to a point where they did such a great job, particularly the nurses, in explaining to me all of the tests. Here's the calcium level. Here's the BUN count, all these kind of things. And there was a, a time, I, I want to say it was on a weekend, where a lot of the regular staff was gone and there were different nurses than we normally would see. 
And I would see them come in and draw blood, and then someone would come in and say, here's your blood results. They didn't have everything transmitted back and forth on computer in those days. They'd bring printouts. And so this lady brings in the printout, and the, the, the doctor was, or the nurse was busy. And I said, oh, I'll take that. And I'm reading it, and I'm saying, oh, we got a BUN count of this. we got this. Oh, that's, that's better. And then the nurse finally finishes up with Stuart, and she goes, doctor, I don't believe we've ever met before. Oh, no. How funny. <laughs> and I said, no, I'm his, I'm his dad. She goes, how do you know so much? I said, I've asked a million questions. And I've been here yes. quite a long time. But, yeah, you know, the, the, the fact that I got to a point where I could read all the results, you know, I didn't need anybody to interpret them for me anymore. So that was kind of cool. So then as the kidneys began to, uh, they had shut down, they couldn't do kidney dialysis because the stress on the heart would be too great. So they had to do what they called a gravity feed of the, of the dialysis, which really just meant God had to do <laughs> some magic. They, uh, they tried Miracle. to, yeah. And so they, you know, they, they would come in there, be like two drops of urine in the, in a, in a you know container and, they, and so what was happening was is they kept putting ivs into stewart he kept growing in size and weight oh because he's not releasing and, and he's looking like a water balloon oh. which is not good on the heart either and for that reason they have to keep a breathing tube down him because there's so much weight on the lungs and the heart you can't expand and that, contract exactly so that that prompted a different story but you had asked earlier about are there any particular scriptures that meant anything to me? So we had gotten into the point where they were really concerned because without the kidneys working, the anesthesia can't be taken out of the body. It goes out of the body with the urine. So they're concerned because they're looking at brain activity and they're looking at all the things that are going wrong and they don't know whether it's because the anesthesia is still in there or because there's a real medical problem. And that's where the, the neurologists and the rest of the doctors all got into a discussion. We'll talk about that in a minute. But there was a particular evening that I think it was day five. I went home and I was, I was trying to get some sleep and I woke up and God said to me, I want you to go down in the family room and pray. And so I took my Bible, I went down to the family room, and I started praying. And God said, Steve, I want you to open your Bible. So I opened up my Bible, and the first sentence I read in the scripture was, there will be streams in the desert. Mm. And I said, the kidney dialysis is going to start working. So I go to the hospital the next day, and the, 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 the urologist says, Mr. Snyder, could you come in my office for a second? I said, sure. He said, can I ask you a question? What were you doing last night at 2.10 a.m.? The exact time? Yeah, because that's when the nurse noticed it. I opened up my diary, and I looked, and I said, I was praying and I said, God gave me the scripture that says there'll be streams in the desert. Is that in Isaiah? Uh, he says, I knew it. Hmm. He said, at 2.10 in the morning, 
the dialysis started to work. And he said there was no good reason for it except for the prayer. Oh, And wow. I just, I mean, I'm crying. I got goosebumps. I'm like, God, you really are there. I know you're, you're with me now. And I'm thinking, you know, okay, this is a, a really good sign, right? That, of course. Let's just talk about the fact that he may have not been a Christian or saved, and here it is, like, he's witnessing a miracle right in front of his very eyes. Exactly. And the fact, like, it, it literally is in your diary, so it's literally written down. I showed it to him. <laughs> yeah, you showed him the diary with your timestamp. As he's asking you the question, you literally hold out the diary and you say, well, at 210... I was praying and God gave me this scripture. So you're about to tell me that my, my child's and kidneys the are working, part was, He you? said, I knew you were praying because it's the only thing that could have possibly caused this to work. There's nothing wow. physically that would have caused this to change. It's a nugget of faith on his oh. behalf. And, you know, when, I, when you asked me earlier, what did I think about this doctor that all of a sudden showed up that I hadn't met before? Right. He and I became really bonded over that. And he's the one that you're talking to now with the correct. scripture. Wow. So let's let's advance the the conversation another day. We get to the next day and yeah, the dialysis is starting to work a little bit. It's it's it, it's functional to some degree, but there's still he's still really bloated. Bloated is a great word. Thank you. And there's still serious debate among the doctors as to whether or not Stuart's going to, you know, what's the outcome here? What's the reasoning? They're looking at the brain activity, and there is brain activity, but it's not what they like. And so the, there's a, 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 a group of doctors. So there's both of Stuart's cardiologists. There's the surgeon. There's the urologist. There's the pediatrician, and now a new guy gets added to the mix that's the neurologist. And his opinion is Stuart's going to be a vegetable. Wow. But so that's a big detour. But it hasn't been exposed to us yet. Okay. So they all come in to do a, a group consult with us, and they had agreed beforehand that they were not going to bring this up because they really felt like there was not enough evidence to tell somebody that was going to happen. And hmm. so they they start discussing and the, the urologist is telling us stuff, the cardiologist, and all of a sudden out of the blue, the neurologist says, well, I'm going to give you my opinion. You may not like it, but I think he's going to be a vegetable. Wow, heartless. Now, let me tell you about the detour that we took there. No kidding. That was just more than any of us can handle. And one of his cardiologists got so angry that he punched the wall. He punched the wall? He punched the wall. He was so angry. And so, needless to say, Sandra and I are now a wreck. And the urologist says to us, guys, come to my office. And so he takes us to his office. The guy that says you're going to be a he's going to be a vegetable wants you to go to the office. No, no, the urologist oh, wants us. The okay. guy that I'm sorry. knew that I was praying at two in the morning that became one of my best buds here. He takes us to his office and he said, "I absolutely, adamantly disagree with that diagnosis." He said, "We talked about this and we all agreed we were not ready to introduce that into the equation because we don't have enough scientific evidence." 
Mm. And he said, he violated what we agreed. Wow. And he said, I, I'm telling you, Steve, that when this kidneys start to function properly again, you're going to see everything start to return to normal. Well, needless to say, you know, seeds planted. Yeah, yeah. you can't unhear he, that. He can see yeah. everything. And then the cardiologist came and talked to us, and they said the same thing as Dr. The, the urologist did, Steve, we don't believe this. We don't think it's right. But now you're a wreck. Yeah. I wasn't thinking about dying at that point. I'm thinking about what is life going to be like if yeah. my son's a vegetable? And so you probably can't get that image out of your head. You can't. I mean, it's and I'm now you talk about praying, man. Yeah. God, I don't know how to pray, but you can't let my child be a vegetable. You just can't. So we go another day or two. We're now down to probably day ten of eleven. And things are looking up. The dialysis has been working. The brain activity is increasing. Things that they use to check the responsiveness, like shining a light in the eye to see if the eye dilates and stuff. It's all improving. And they they all agree that they were right. He's not going to be a vegetable. He's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. Now the neurologist is nowhere to be found because he's not going to come and admit I was wrong. <laughs> you know, that, that's not part of his equation. But all the other doctors said, see, we told you. And we're all feeling pretty good at that point. And, you know, Mike, you asked the question, is it like a roller coaster? Every day was a, a multiple roller coaster ride. The temperature would be great. The temperature would drop. The temperature would go way up. The dialysis worked. The dialysis quit working. Every single day you were introduced to new challenges that you didn't know what they were. And that, that's where, you know, if, 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 a, if getting through the end of the day during something like this is too overwhelming, shorten the time frame. Lord, help me get through the next hour. And if that's too overwhelming, Lord, help me get through the next five minutes. Yeah. Shorten that time frame. You you can't give up. It's your kid. But you shorten those time frames however short you need to make them so that you can get through them. And 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 God understands that. And he's right there with you. So you know, earlier when you said that you were you were able to go see Stuart one for 5 minutes every hour, that's what went through my mind is okay, now your roller coaster is every hour. Yep. Yeah. Every hour you're going into that room to see what's changed, see Are you your praying kid. over him every hour? Oh, every time I went in. Absolutely. Yeah. But what we, 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 we kind of alluded to earlier that I want to go back to is we talked about the roller coaster ride. There was always something about the nighttime that was part of the roller coaster ride. And they, they finally convinced us. They said, you guys need to go home and get rest. We'll call you if there's anything. We'd get home and... It, it almost every night between one and three a.m. We get a call. You need to get over here. Oh, and we would race over there, and his blood pressure would be forty over twenty, and you know they're doing all they can, and or you know, there was just all kinds of circumstances that led him to believe that hey, he may not make it. Well, every time there was one of those, there was it, Pastor Schmidgall had said, "You call me. I don't care what time of the day or night. You call me." 
So I would call him, and many a night, Pastor Schmidtgall was there at 2 o'clock in the morning to pray over Stuart. What a faithful and shepherd. every time, I mean, I look at Pastor Schmidtgall is probably the most grounded person in Jesus Christ I've ever met. Agreed. And when this man prayed, he moved mountains. And he would pray, and by the next morning, Stuart would be back to level again, you know? So there were just, you know, we, we almost got in the habit of driving over there at one or two o'clock in the morning because it was, it was a constant. So we got to day 10 and everything's starting to stabilize. We have no idea what was caused this problem at all. No idea. But what we do know is the dialysis is working. His brain activity's coming back to normal. Um, everything's looking pretty fine. So I go over, we, we took turns in those days. Sander would go in the morning then, and I, I would stand with you, and then I would go in the evenings. So I'm over there, and his cardiologist comes into me. He goes, all right, Pop, let's go. You're going with me. Like, where are we going? He said, tonight's the night of the parent support group for all the parents of kids with heart problems. He said, you're going to become a a part of this group. I want to take you to the meeting so you can meet some of the other people. They can hear your story. And I want you to, you know, to really get to know these people. I'm like, okay, cool. So we go to the thing. He gets up in front of all these people and he introduces me and he tells Stuart's entire story. And he said, the great news is, he said, we have no idea what caused this. None whatsoever. That's great news. No, he said, but the great news is he's now so good that we're moving him to a regular room tomorrow out of intensive care. He said he's stable, and Steve and his wife, Sandra, will become members of this group, and I really want to give him a chance to meet you guys and see what we do at these meetings and everything. And I'm like, and it was very cool. All these people are like, wow, yeah, let me tell you my story. We're all exchanging stories, and, you know, you talk about all the things that you've asked me, you know, how did you deal with this? And you know, right. you need there's a probably there's probably you. fifteen or twenty families there as a part of this. So I go home that evening. I go back to see Stuart, and everything's fine. You know, and I tell him, I say, Stuart, guess what? Tomorrow, dude, you're moving to a new room, and you, you, you get we're getting ready to come home. You know, you and and Mike are going to have the greatest Christmas ever, and we're all going to be one big happy family. And I, you know, I'm praising, praising God and thanking him for everything. And I go home and I like, Sandra, you aren't going to believe this. They're moving him out of intensive care tomorrow morning into a regular room. And they think he could be home in just a couple of days. We beat this thing. And she said, well, if we make it through the night, I'll believe you. Okay. You know, as a, as a, as a woman, there's this uncanny way of your brain, like woman brain. I talk to my husband about that all the time, about how there's these windows, like a window on a computer that's opened, and it keeps running in the background. It does not go away until there's a resolution to that thought or that problem or that processy. It just It's just opened. So until it's resolved, it's opened. And so we don't have that beautiful, like, nothing box that you guys have where you can kind of silo stuff and close it off and that's fine. So she's probably going, I, 
I don't know that I can feel this way until I know that box is closed. I can, I can resolve that he's gotten through the night and he's coming home, and then I can shut that window, that computer window, as I like to call it. Well, there's one more element that you need to know about. Hmm. While I was there at the hospital that night, she's reading the Bible, and she reads the scripture that says, let the children come to me and don't try to stop, stop them. them. For such is the kingdom of heaven. And she said, I knew right then God told me he was taking my son. Really? She knew it. And she didn't want to tell me that. But that was that night? That was the night before he, he, that was, I got home at 11 o'clock at night. We got a call at one o'clock, two hours later to get back to the hospital. That night while I was at the hospital, she read that scripture passage and she said, I knew he was going to die. Oh my God! I don't care what the doctors say. I knew she was gonna. He was gonna die. And she, but she didn't tell, tell me you. that. She does not tell me that. So we we go to well, bed. Just take a moment to think about like she's now bearing that weight all by herself. Oh yeah. Like a, a granite, Jesus is bearing it with her, but like she's not expressing this to you at all. No. So she's going in with a totally different mindset than you, a totally different perspective. She knew what was coming at one o'clock. She did. She. God had already told her, I'm preparing you for this. It's going to happen. And sure enough, the phone rings at 1 o'clock in the morning. You guys better get over here. Well, we race over, and when we get to the hospital, we get the stop sign. We're running down the hallway, and Dr. Griffin, his cardiologist, meets us, and he puts his hand up like a traffic cop and gives me the stop sign. Ooh. And he says, he didn't make it. Just like that? Just like that. And, mm. y you know, it's like, wait a minute. What just happened here? And when I tell you what happened, it makes it hurt even worse. So because of the kidney dialysis, they had to keep the breathing tube down his throat because they wanted to make it as easy for him to breathe with all this water pressure that was on his heart and his lungs. And he died because he coughed up some phlegm and it lodged in the breathing tube and he suffocated. Oh. And it happened so quickly. He was so weak that they, they the, the nurse was right there, ripped that tube out of there and started doing chest compressions and everything else. It didn't work. He was so weak. He was just so weak. And so all of a sudden, when he put up that stop sign, that was the true moment that my real life detour was in 24 karat gold you know the, the, it was like dude you're now in serious detour the the fundamental dna of our family had just changed totally mm -hmm. and you know the, the the tough part of it is at that moment you have so many emotions and i know we're going to dedicate another episode to all of the various emotions, because I call it this tidal wave of emotions engulf you. It's not just one. There are many different emotions that that bombard you all at once. Yeah. Not the least of which is I got a four-year-old kid at home saying, "Where's my brother? Is Stuart coming home tomorrow, Dad?" What are we going to tell him? P.S. Christmas is how many days away? Less than two weeks. Yeah. So, you know, of course, I called Pastor Schmidt Gall. He came right over. 
And he walked in the room, and they had taken Stuart away and cleaned him up, got all the hoses and everything off of him. Because Sandra said, I want to hold my baby one more time. So he walked in, and Sandra's holding her baby. And the first, I don't know, it was the first words out of her mouth, but very soon after was the question you asked. I've been a Christian since I was old enough to give my life to Jesus. How could he take my son? She's asking that to Pastor Schmidt Pastor Schmidt And I think that, if I can be honest, I, I think I'd be worried if that wasn't the first question or at the, you know, near the top of the list, because you, you're going to seek to understand. You need, you just have so many questions. That, that's the most obvious question to ask is, is how could this happen? What, and, and so many times you would blame yourself. What did I do? What could I have done? Should we have waited till January to have the surgery where his body was a little bit stronger? Who, who knows? A million questions going through her mind, I'm sure. Oh, through both of our minds. And, and, and yet, you know, the challenging part here, Michael, is that I've heard lots of people ask that question of pastors. And the real truth is they don't know how to answer it either. They'll, they'll do their best, but the, you know, they don't understand why. The, the key piece is, and you know, it's 40 years in the rear view, view, rear view mirror for me now, and I can look back and say to myself, oh, what do I understand? God's revealed to me some things about why that happened. Um, yeah, as he has me, I, 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 if you an, a, asked me that question 20 years ago, I, my answer now is different than it was. God gives me glimpses all the time, but it's still your kid. And I, to be honest with you, I don't know that there would be an answer, even if you were given an answer. You wouldn't you, accept it probably. That's right. I, yeah, it's your kid. It's an it's a relational question. It's it's about the relationship you have with God that no pastor is going to understand or even be able to adequately answer that. That is a relational question. Why there, God? There are two standard answers that people will give you. Not pastors necessarily, just people. They'll say, "Well, it was God's will. It's going to be okay." That that doesn't work you know it, it's like right yeah it it, it and, and they don't understand it you know unless you've lost a child you cannot relate with the feeling that you go through when you lose one it i've lost parents i've lost my my wife's parents there's no comparison i can't you, imagine there, you never want to have your child die before you do Yes, it seems and unnatural. So to say to me, well, it's God's will. And the other one is, well, you know he's better off where he's at now. That doesn't give me a very good feeling either. You know, it's like, yeah, but I want him here. Yeah. I mean, I would be the first to tell you, I have no question that Stuart's in heaven. He had no time to sin. You know, he, he's definitely in heaven. And he's probably up there zipping around on a scooter somewhere, you know, having a blast. Well, he's 40 and, and I, now, so maybe Yeah, not. that's true. <laughs> but, no, but I mean, at that time, I'm sitting there thinking, yeah. he's, he's up there having the time of his life. He's going to have the best Christmas ever. 
for sure. But that doesn't do anything for those of us that are still left behind. And I think that makes a, a really good talking point here. It's like there are things that people say that are like, wow, that should not have been said. And then there are things that um, can be helpful. And sometimes it's saying nothing. What would you say to the listener out there who has somebody that's lost a child or someone else? Like death is very uncomfortable to talk about, even though it's a 100% certainty. Well, I think uh, th- that's a great question. I think we actually kind of talked about doing that in the next episode because that comes up a lot at the funeral. Okay. People walking up to you at the funeral all the yeah. things to say, all the things not to say. So if you don't mind, let's let's pause yeah. that one for one episode. Um, just because there's so much there. I'm it, sure. It's such a great question uh, that we want to make sure we do due diligence. But You know, you, you look back on the events. And I'll, I'll, I'll reference an event that happened. One of my very dear friends is a guy named Bill Aylesworth. He came over to the hospital one day and he said, Steve, let's go down to the chapel. He said, it's been decades since I've been in a church. He said, maybe if we go down and pray together, God will recognize that I'm here. And maybe he'll heal your son. Something as simple as that. 40 years later, I'll never forget. When you deal with someone that's going through this, you have to know that sometimes the smallest, maybe most insignificant thing means the world to that person. When what's so staggering about that comment is he hadn't been in a church. It, it was His comment was self-sacrificial. It was. I don't go to church. I don't believe in that stuff. You Christians are all crazy, but maybe, just maybe, you're right, and me showing up would be so surprising to God that he go, wait a minute, Bill's here, and he brought Steve with him? Let me listen. Yeah. And there's some philosophical things, you know, behind the scenes with that 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 aren't exactly correct, but the heart... Behind that was so self-sacrificial. It it really, you know, what I would say to, to the folks listening today is that you have a, a responsibility as a Christian to support any of your friends, family, and even people you don't know very well, to support them in this time of need. One thing I will tell you is, when I look back on this, you know, 40 years ago, there are people that did certain things that were very insignificant players in my life, but they took a step to support me that I still remember. That's incredible. You know, I had salespeople that called on me that only called on me once or twice that that, that found out about it, and they did stuff, They, you know, and I'm like... Why did you do this? And they said, well, Steve, it's your son. And, you know, the other thing I I really didn't get a chance to mention that I really want to bring out here is that at the time I had, I worked for a company that had facilities all across the country. And the word got out about Stuart. And I got a 
a, a note one day from our plant in North Carolina. And it just said, Dear Mr. Snyder, we wanted to let you know that we as a team meet every day at lunch to pray for your son. And we just wanted you to know that. Wow. You have no idea what that meant. These were people that some of them, did, didn't, they knew me by name. They certainly weren't people that were my my best friends. They were people that worked in this plant, but they cared enough when they heard that one of their fellow employees had a problem that they got together and created a prayer group and met every day and prayed for Stuart. If you're saying to yourself, well, I don't really know this person, what, what could I possibly do? Look how powerful that was. You can pray. Yeah, you remember that 40 years well, later. Every detail of it. You know, there are certain things that just stick out in your mind that you say that was meaningful. It didn't change the outcome, but it meant so much at the time. And that's the thing that we as Christians have to say to ourselves is, what can I do to help support a suffering brother and sister that I may or may not even know? Yeah, Yeah, we're going to do an entire episode on that, as a matter of fact, because so many people don't have a sick child, right. ha- haven't dealt with that. And it's it's oftentimes it's the elephant in the room that's really awkward. If you know someone is going through something and you go up to them and you don't want to say anything, it's like you're not addressing the elephant in the room. And then the, the, the other side of that is the people that do address it and they just don't know what to say. And they say, honestly, some pretty insensitive, just flat out, dumb things. Um, we're we're going to dedicate an entire episode to what do you do? What do you say? What do you not do? What do you not say? Um, because yeah, the, this, you're going to, you may not be on one side of the fence, but you will be on the other, which is you're going to know someone that goes through something, right. whether it's their spouse or their, their parents or whatever. So we're going to dedicate some more time to this one too. I, I have some dear friends and their son is, is, Brian's in his 40s. I can't tell you his exact age, but he's all but engaged to a, a lady. They just really, they've been together for a long time, but they really just cemented the relationship up recently. And on St. Patrick's Day of this year, her parents were driving home, and a drunk driver crossed over the center line and hit him head on, killing her mother. And seriously injuring her father who's still in a lot of ways fighting for his life. I'd never met this lady, but I just felt moved that I needed to do something. And so I, I had a, a pork roast in the, in the freezer and I got it out and I made some pulled pork and I made some muffins and I took them over to my friend's house and said, can you deliver these to Brian? And, and then, you know, he took him to Brian's house and I met this lady a few weeks, actually a couple months later. And she said to me, do you have any idea what that meant to me? She said, I didn't even know you. And yet you thought enough of me to do this. And and my reaction is it's the least I could do. I, I prayed for your mom and dad. I've prayed for you. I just wanted you to know somebody cared enough, you know, and you don't have to know and have someone as your best friend to do something like that. Um, it in in this world is losing compassion. Oh, totally by the hour. Yeah, it, it, people are are so quick to judge, and and it's 
you know, there, there's more important things than right and wrong. There, there's just simply self-sacrifice yep. of saying, hey, I, I haven't been to church in decades, but let's go together because maybe that changes something. Yeah. You never met me, but you, you made some pulled pork so that I didn't have to, well, one the, less thing I had to think w- about. It's the, one of the things Nicole told me is she said, I'd made like five dozen muffins because I didn't know how big her family was, you know? I mean, <laughs> I kept hearing she had lots of aunts and uncles and all this. She said, so we took some to the hospital. And she said that the, the, the doctors and the nurses were taking them and just so grateful. And, you know, I, she's like, I just want you to know what that meant. And I was like, Nicole. I'm really glad that it blessed you because in, in that type of time of stress, sometimes the littlest things get amplified into something really big. And I'm glad you felt that way. Yeah, we, we often refer to it as just the ripple effects, Deb. I think you've talked about it, but just throwing that pebble into a you know a little lake or a little puddle and, and yep. just watching those ripple effects, you, you just never know. Because when people know you're a Christian the two times they watch you the most is the peaks and the valleys. Mm-hmm. When it's things true. are going really well, what are you like? And when things are going really bad, what, what do you, do you like? like? It's in that middle area that, that okay, n- not not so much on the the eyes on you, but, you know, that, that as Christians, you know, we're, we're called to serve. And whether you're the recipient, I hope no one needs to be the recipient. I hope that nobody is put in a position where you need people to step up like that. But just know that, you know, when someone's going through a trial like this, it's just those so minor self-sacrificial statements or actions that that go so far. They do for sure. So I think we're kind of through this episode. The next episode we're going to get into is the actual funeral. That's where we're going to get into... We're going to spend a little bit of time probably on emotions, but we got another episode coming up on the emotions afterwards. But this is how do you get through the funeral? What do people say to you? What what do you remember them saying, good and bad? Um, just what does all of that look like? That's got to be an absolute whirlwind, just several days. So that's going to be the next episode. Uh, and then we've got some more stuff coming up after that. So uh, thank you guys so much. Deb, did you have something you wanted to say there? No, Dad, I just want to thank you for your vulnerability and your willingness to share something that, it, you know, has rocked your family. And I think well, your you're welcome. compassion towards the heart of others, you know, gives other people in the audience hope. Well, I think you can see, even though 40 years have passed, there are still parts of this that become very emotional to me because they did mean something significant. And I'm sure at the time, my friend Bill thought, no, there's no big deal, but I'm going to try it, see if it helps. But it's uh, it, it will be something that for the rest of my life, I will always be grateful for what he tried to do for me. And what can you say? Yeah. Thank you for sharing. My pleasure. Thank you. Yes, so guys, stay tuned. We will be back in two weeks with our next episode where we will dive into, uh, as I mentioned, just the funeral and that wave of emotions that hits and, and how you navigate that as a Christian. So we hope you guys tune in then. But otherwise, thank you so much, and we will see you then. Take care. Bye now.
Thanks for listening to Detours. For more content, you can find us on Spirit FM Radio, Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Play, or on our website at detours.life. To view my writings or to contact me for public speaking engagements, visit my website at debmarsalisi.com. Thank you.